0: And much
1: more. Asalaamu Alaikum, brothers and sisters, I'd like to welcome you all to another Friday circle. Um, Jazakallah khair for attending. Um, Today we have Brother Adnan Khan who's going to be uh, talking or answering the question, why do the French hate us? And um, also, what what does it mean when the politicians and the journalists talk about the clash of civilizations? Um, As we've been following uh, the news over the past uh, few months, We've seen the vitriolic attack uh, in France on the Prophet Sallallahu And we've seen um, since then, uh, beheading of a teacher. Uh, we've seen the um, statements by Macron and his cronies um, about Republican and the Republican charter giving the Muslims 15 days to abide by the secular values. And this has all put pressure on the Muslim community uh, in France and in wider afield. Uh, But what does this really mean? Um, When they mention uh, words such as political Islam, Islamic fascism, Islamic terrorism, um, everything negative seems to be uh, linked to Islam at the moment. And they continue to try to put uh, Islam in the dock. When it's the secular system itself has actually bred these problems throughout the world, not just in France, but throughout the Muslim world as well. So inshallah, hopefully Brother Adnan can give us a clearer understanding of why do the French hate us and uh, why is this situation uh, occurring now? So, inshallah, without further ado, I'd like to pass you
2: over to Brother Adnan. as assalamu Alaikum to you all. I hope you're all uh, well on this very cold uh, evening. Uh, and as Brother Aftab uh, mentioned, there's obviously a lot's happened uh, in the last few weeks, the last two months we've seen a barrage of attacks and questions thrown at islam uh, at muslims at the muslim rulers Uh, and this isn't anything new really uh, especially from the french obviously of late we've seen lots of uh, uh, attacks uh, on on islam so what i want to do today is is really answer the question uh, which was on the flyer for this talk why do the french hate us and you know, somebody could argue uh, it's not all the French, and that's absolutely true. It's not all French. However, uh, there seems to be a problem that comes from France. They they seem to have a problem with Muslims. Uh, they've made this clear. Uh, and that's what I want to look at today, really, is what is the problem the French have? How has this uh, uh, evolved? Uh, and really, should we just view this as... Uh, some marginal country, some marginal people, a problem with Islam, or is there much more to this that we need to actually t- take uh, seriously? So that's what I plan to do tonight, and inshallah we can uh, maybe take some discussion and have some questions uh, afterwards as well. So on the 1st of September, the French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo, it republished a series of cartoons to mark the beginning of the trial of uh, the 2015 magazine attack that took place in uh, Paris. And that was on the 1st of September. In October, uh, as a result of this, or for some motivation similar to this, a primary school teacher in the north of Paris, they showed their class uh, these pictures, uh, these pictures of our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam mocking Islam. And apparently the teacher showed this to his students to discuss the concept of freedom of expression. By the 16th of October, uh, this teacher was stabbed, uh, as we know, and he was decapitated, as it's been uh, uh, reported. As a result of this, we've seen, you know, the French respond to this attack, They say, as they say, on freedom of expression. Charlie Hebdo, for anyone who knows, is a satirical magazine. They apparently uh, mock, ridicule everything and everyone, which we will look at uh, uh, later. And as a response to this attack on their way of life, all French cities projected images of the controversial cartoons on public buildings and rallies were held where many French came out in support physically and verbally of their right to undertake such actions and actually to mock uh, Muslims. So the French, just looking at this short period, they stand out from all the other nations when it comes to mocking Islam. It was actually the Danish daily newspaper that first published caricatures of our Prophet back in uh, 2005. Uh, And that ignited a wave of protests uh, around the world. So, you know, taking this all into account, we really have to ask the question, why do they hate us? Why do they regularly uh, attack uh, Islam? And why do they... Yes. Uh,
1: Sorry, if I can interject just for a moment there. Unfortunately, you've got a bit of an issue with the picture. There's something covering your video on Facebook on the right. Could I ask you to move your video uh, a little bit to the left of the screen, please? Your video box. OK, one second.
2: The video box.
1: Yeah, sorry, brothers and sisters. Yeah, can you just uh, drag it from the top there across the left a little bit. Is that
2: uh, better?
1: Uh, a little bit more. OK, inshallah. Sure, that should that, I think that should be OK. Is
2: that OK.
1: Yeah, let's carry Yeah, hopefully that should be okay, inshallah. Yeah. Sorry to disturb you there.
2: Oh, can I just give you? I think I better put my charger in, the battery's about to go. <laughs> Sorry uh,
1: Inshallah, we'll reconvene in just one moment. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that should be fine there where the video is now. Inshallah, while. Uh, none deals with that situation, Inshallah. We'll start just shortly. Okay, okay.
2: Inshallah. Okay, you can uh, hear me loud and
1: clear? Yeah, go ahead, John.
2: Okay, Inshallah. Okay, so the question really is, is why do they hate us? The the French uh, have really uh, singled out uh, Muslims. And I want to look at this because there's actually a long history to this. This hasn't just come out of nowhere. The French attacking Islam, attacking all Muslims, attacking our beliefs, attacking our Prophet this hasn't come out of nowhere. In fact, the French actually have a very long history with Muslims uh, and uh, Islam. And really, just to give this a bit of context here, yeah, have an ayah here from the Quran, from Surah Al-Saf, which I think puts the whole discussion into context. And in translation, uh, uh, in the Surah al it tells us that they wish to extinguish the light of Allah with their words, but Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, will perfect his message, even though the disbelievers detest it. And I think that really gives good context to what we're going to discuss, and we'll come back to this Aya uh, at the end. Uh, but keep this eye in mind, because I think it, it really puts into context the struggle we're facing uh, uh, around the world, and especially with the uh, French. So the French uh, people, they established a strong state in the center of Europe in 1789, uh, in what came to be known as the French Revolution. And the French Revolution, and sisters, so if you don't know, was really the first time in Europe a monarch was overthrown uh, because the people wanted to live by uh, different values, to freedom, to secularism. And the French, this is part of the identity. Uh, they always talk about how um, these sort of uh, issues, uh, the French Revolution is quite central to their uh, identity. So they executed uh, their king and became the first people to adopt freedom, individualism and secularism. So even today, uh, the French don't recognize groups of people. For them, you're an individual. The French state's job is to protect your rights as individuals. So this was the argument for Charlie Hebdo, that they have the freedom to express themselves. And if you don't like it, you just have to stomach it because the French – for a bloody revolution for these ideas and these ideas are sacrosanct uh, for them as far as they're concerned. So you find in the 1800s, most of the philosophers of that era were French and the French still take great pride in this and the French really were the leading advocates of change in Europe. In fact, they led a sweeping wave in Europe that monarchs and autocrats need to go and it's all about a government of the people who protect their individual rights. So people like Voltaire, Jean Jacques Rousseau, these are famous philosophers, thinkers, even uh, today. So the French at the time, they were leading change uh, in uh, Europe. Uh, and you know this is a central belief of the French people. And very quickly, the French turned on Europe and the world. So the French from the day one, they worked to export their culture. Uh, To the whole uh, world. So like Britain, uh, the French established many colonies around the world. So they established colonies in North uh, America, they established colonies in the West Indies, the Caribbean, and as we know they established colonies in Africa as well. The chart I've got in front of me is Napoleon's uh, attempt to expand French culture throughout uh, Europe. And this map shows you really the colonies uh, France had. So even today, Uh, In North America, in Canada, Quebec, uh, the province, French is the national language there, uh, even though Quebec is just one province of uh, Canada. You see, West Africa was a key area where the French colonized, uh, and the the French also colonized uh, India, which they lost in the end, and Vietnam, which eventually the Americans took over uh, uh, as well. So the difference between the French and every other colonialist was when the French went into a country and colonized it, its aim was to make the people French. So That meant the host country, the host people adopting the French language as their language, adopting French customs, effectively freedom, secularism, these sort of values. And individualism was the key to this. So you find the French went into Africa where tribes existed, where all sorts of groupings existed, and they came and broke uh, all of that. So, the French colonial policy historically was always about making you French. Now, this is quite unique because although the British wanted you to become like them, they didn't necessarily want you to become English uh, as long as, you know, you adopted uh, parts of their language and you weren't a threat to them. For the French, a successful colonial adventure was the more French the whole nation uh, became. And probably the most important colony for France was Algeria uh, and they occupied this uh, country for about 100 years plus and the Algerian experience really has done a lot to shape French perception of Muslims uh, and uh, Islam. So the French, they conquered Algeria in 1830 and they immediately set about dominating the, the land. Now the main strategy was to make it a part of France. So Algeria wasn't ruled as a separate colony. It was actually part of France. So you had France, you had the Mediterranean Ocean, and then you had Algeria. As far as the French were concerned, this was one country. So as a result, hundreds of thousands of French immigrants went over to uh, Algeria and they lived there. So effectively they were settlers who were living amongst a foreign people. And really what took place after this was a brutal occupation what the French found is they were unable to deal with the host public. So you had Berbers who had become Muslim, Islam had been in Algeria for hundreds of years, and this was a big struggle for the French. So you find there was about three million Algerians in Algeria in the early 1800s. And within 30 years, uh, so there were three million and a million of them were killed uh, by the French, through war, massacre, disease, and famine. In 1906, the colonial forces of the French used chemical weapons, max execution, and prisoners and concentration camps in order to put down uh, an uprising. So this was a uh, brutal occupation which they struggled to actually maintain. So I've got a quote here from the Foreign Affairs magazine in 1940, which I think really captures what happened. And I'll read out the quote. This was in 1940. The capture of Algiers in 1830 marked a significant departure in the expansionist policy of France for North Africa was quite unlike older French colonial possessions in the Caribbean Sea and the Indian Ocean. The French soon discovered that North Africa did not produce tropical goods and that the native population could neither be destroyed to make way for European colonialists nor enslaved to work for them. They also found that Islam provided the natives with a religious and cultural ideal, which they would stubbornly defend. France had not been fitted by experience to understand and govern an Islamic people. So this author, I think, really highlights really clearly the struggle France had. So we're talking 1830 onwards. The French struggled to physically colonise uh, a large territory in North Africa, and the fundamental problem was Islam. The the, the the Algerian people were muslims and as far as they were concerned they were not going to give up their identity and for the french a successful colonization is forcing the people to become french so islam stood as a massive obstacle back in the 1830s and that's why the french have always resorted to a very confrontational approach to control people so This explains some of what they do today, very in your face, very picking on parts of your belief, and basically making them illegal. This is very different to many of the other colonialists who didn't go with that strategy. They use other strategies to uh, colonize uh, the people. So if we fast forward to World War II, everything had changed. So the French and the British, really up until World War I and up until World War II, they were the dominant powers. But then everything changed by World War II. And what changed? Well, the Nazis humiliated the French by conquering them in merely 44 days. In just 44 days, the Germans conquered uh, the French, and it's something they've never really uh, recovered from. Then when World War II finished in 1945, France was bankrupt, it was defeated, it was devastated, and it was economically finished. And it had even bigger problems. The Soviet Union and America had emerged on the international scene as the new powers. So where the French and the British were the global power ship in the world, by the time World War II finished in 1945, that had completely changed. So the French who were devastated actually now needed workers from the colonies to come to them. Usually it was the other way around. The French would go to the colonies and take their resources and get people to work in the fields and the mines and take those resources. Now they actually physically needed Muslims from North Africa to come to France and basically build France. So really what had happened is the French had declined as a power, their decline declined in importance, and this is something the French have struggled to deal with up until even today. So although 1945, World War II was a long time ago, The French have struggled to deal with the fact that they are not shaping the world. Uh, They are not the important players even uh, in the world. So from World War II up until the 21st century, all of the French leaders were people born before World War II and people born with the experience of World War II. All the French leaders post-World War II believed France is a power, irrespective of what's happened, and France needs to stand alone. So on the left here, you've got Jacques Chirac, who was the last leader of France. He led from 1996 up until about 2007. He was the last leader who experienced World War II. All the leaders after him, starting with Nicolas Sarkozy, were rulers who were born well after World War II. They they were not part of the experience of uh, World War II. So when Sarkozy came to power, the view of France was, we're now in a new era. All our elder leaders who were still uh, had this World War Two mentality, they're finally gone. However, France had significant deeper issues which no leader really uh, was going to change. So here's one example. In the early 2000s Time magazine, it ran a whole series uh, looking at France and it concluded that the, the death of French culture, that the French culture is dead. Now, this is very important because the French believe they have a unique culture. So they believe their language, their art, their culture is something the world wants to aspire to. And that's what makes the French unique. However, Time magazine and many surveys at the time found French culture is dead. Nobody really cares about French culture uh, uh, anymore. And then things got even worse when um, the French leader at the time, Jacques Chirac, he set up a commission called the Stasi Commission. And his job was to look at the state of secularism in France because he felt, like many French were, that something's not right. We we are depressed people. We're not confident about our future. And his commission came up with a law. And the law is, as I put on the screen, their law was that the separation of church and state secularism is being threatened by the wearing of symbols or garbs which show religious affiliation in primary and secondary schools. So they're basically saying secularism is under threat. The reason why we're depressed is our belief, secularism, freedom is under threat. It's under threat from religious symbols. So, Because the French believe in the separation of church and state, anything uh, that comes from religion is a threat. So primarily, they were targeting the hijab. So although they say uh, religious symbols, we all know, really it's about the uh, uh, hijab. So the French set up a commission and concluded our beliefs are under threat. And and the, the, the commission actually came up with some solutions. And one of them was that the hijab, along with other religious symbols, should be banned because they are a show of religious affiliation, which contradicts the French beliefs. So the French were trying to defend their civilization. And what are they uh, defending it from? They're defending it from a threat of people who believe in something else. And then they show that belief via the wearing of the uh, hijab. So the French, they view themselves as an enlightened people that brought civilization not just to Europe, but to the whole world. Uh, And this history, they felt, was uh, under threat. And that's why since then, we've seen numerous attacks on Islam. So you saw this commission that said, you know, Islam's a problem because of the hijab. And since then, we've seen uh, attacks on our Prophet through caricatures and through statements from French politicians who, uh, are attack, who attack different parts of uh, Islam. So I've just got some quotes there, just really from uh, the current leader, uh, Macron, who recently said a number of things of Islam. So when uh, the uh, teacher was killed in the French uh, suburb, he said that the, the, the French, here, they, they need to rid France of what the authorities call a parallel society of radical Muslims who, in his words, thrive outside the values of the nation. So he's really just confirming what the Stasi Commission confirmed uh, 10 years before. So he proposed something. yeah, In a proposed new law, he proposed to defend the republic and its values and ensure Islam, Muslims, respects its promise of equality and emancipation. So this isn't just a few Muslims who did something wrong. He's saying that the French Republic's values are under threat and they need to be protected. And he made it very clear what the problem was. The problem was Islam, but Islam is a religion that is in crisis all over the world today. And also this statement got a lot of uh, uh, public uh, attention. Uh, It got a lot of uh, pushback from Muslims around the world. We've seen demonstrations around the world uh, uh, as well. So what this shows you is, France as a nation has had problems with Muslim Islam going a long way uh, back. So, what's been the response of our rulers? Uh, These aren't some small attacks on Muslims and Islam. The attack on Islam, the attacks on our Prophet, the support of caricatures against our Prophet, these are not small attacks. These are attacks on a core part of our belief and they're becoming more and more regular. So, Erdogan responded, and he initially said that Macron needs mental treatment. Uh, He he ridiculed him, uh, and he said, you know, what is the problem of this person, Macron, with Muslims and Islam? So that was the response of uh, Erdogan. Now, Turkey is, France is the third largest trade partner of Turkey. So Erdogan responded by even telling the people that you should uh, boycott French goods. So he didn't stop the imports of French goods. They've actually continued. What he said is you, the Turkish people, should stop buying French goods, despite the fact that France relies upon the Turkish uh, market. Imran Khan also responded, and he said, by attacking Islam clearly, without having any understanding of it, President Macron has attacked and hurt the sentiments of Muslims in Europe and across the world. So Imran Khan responded with words. Uh, Nothing much more uh, came from him after that. Then you had the ruler of Qatar and he responded by actually forcing some businesses in Qatar to take French goods uh, off uh, their shelves. Now, Qatar has invested over 22 billion in France. It's actually the second largest uh, financial investor in uh, France. Uh, And in fact, the uh, Turkish, the French foreign minister even admitted that the French company now rely on capital money that comes from its sovereign wealth fund. So that has continued. Nothing stopped on that front. So apart from, you know, taking a few French goods off their shelves, nothing more has come from them. Then you got Saudi Arabia, King uh, Salman, and the Saudi monarchy actually didn't respond. Some Saudi state agency. Was quoted and they quoted an anonymous foreign ministry official who says that they reject any link with Islam that the French have actually uh, said. Um, and this is interesting because in 2018, the Saudis have been investing billions of uh, uh, amounts in French aerospace uh, companies. So our prophet gets attacked, our dean gets attacked, and physically speaking, our rules have not done anything. They've said lots of words, a lot of fighting words. Um, a Saudi is the country. That threatened the Tony Blair government of supporting terrorist attacks in Britain if there was an investigation into an arms deal. It's called the Al Yamama arms deal, where basically Saudi Arabia took kickbacks to actually get the deal. And as a result, the Serious Fraud Office did an investigation into this and they were going to reveal how corrupt the deal was. And it was going to look, the Saudis looked really bad. But the Saudis actually threatened the Tony Blair government that we're going to support, stop sharing intelligence with you which means there's likely going to be more terrorist attacks in your country if this actual uh, deal goes ahead. So what this really shows you, brothers and sisters, is if you look at our rulers and their response, the response of our rulers is the complete opposite to how the Ummah feels. You've had demonstrations across the world. You've had people take to the streets. You've had Muslims come forward that we're going to boycott uh, the goods of this country. But our rulers, apart from mere rhetoric, they've not done anything uh more than that and really what this reveals again is where the ummah is in terms of sentiments and where our rulers are is worlds apart and you see this you look at the Myanmar uh, issue Burma you look at what's happened to Muslims in Xinjiang you look at what's happening to Muslims in Syria you look at what's happening with Muslims in Palestine the sentiments of the Muslims is in one direction and our rulers and what they're doing is completely opposite literally what the ummah want is a complete opposite to what our rules are doing and what they're also promising as well. And this is why, brothers, it's not surprising that anyone who defends the honour of the Prophet, the Ummah supports them. Now, hopefully you should know who this gentleman is. He recently passed away, Khadim Rizvi of uh, uh, Pakistan. And these are scenes from his janazah. Yeah, It's very unlikely any of our rulers would get this sort of turnout to the janazah. The reason he got such a huge turnout was because he actually set up a movement to defend the honour of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He set up a new movement and he actually forced the government's hand to do something. So after weeks of bringing the capital of Pakistan to a standstill, the Pakistani government had to agree to uh, uh, to uh, expel the French ambassador. So this group did a sit-in to force the government. And this is a scenario: our Prophet is being attacked. And we have to force our rulers to defend the honour of the Prophet. So we've got rulers who have got resources, who have got capabilities, who have got effectively assets in their hands that they can hurt the French with. But they don't use that. And our rule, our people, the Ummah, is forced to actually undertake actions to force the, the hands of our government. So this really shows that the sentiment of the people and our rulers is completely opposite. Our rulers really are not representative of how we uh, feel. So the French Macron, the leader, he made an allegation that Islam uh, is in crisis all over the world. And that's actually very interesting because he needs to take a hard look at his own country before he points at other people. Now, these are just a few facts, brothers and sisters, I found online. You can find a lot more online. In a 2011 poll, the French were considered to be the most pessimistic in the world. This is a problem uh, in France. Seven out of ten French people say that they suffer from collective uh, depression. France is the biggest consumer of mood-altering drugs in Europe. And the World Health Organization has also confirmed that the French are most likely to suffer from a major depression episode. So this is a country that has got significant internal issues. And that's the real problem. You've got a system that doesn't work. You've got the people who are depressed and what does the leader do? He points the finger at Muslims. He points the finger at Islam is actually the problem. So he's not actually even dealing with the issues his people are facing. What he's trying to do is deflect attention from his own failure and his system's failure and blame it actually on Muslims. And because of France's history with Muslims and Islam, a lot of people in France buy into this. And it gets worse, brothers and sisters, this is the Yellow West movement in France. The Yellow Vest Movement was a movement set up about two, three years ago when the economic situation was so bad in France that they started wearing these vests for what emergency services wear. And they literally bought Paris to a standstill. So these are the problems France is having inside its own country. And what the leaders doing and what some of the French uh, pol- political elite are doing is they're trying to scapegoat Islam. Islam is actually the uh, problem. In fact, Islam is such a think- big problem. You'd think... There's such a large Muslim population in France that the country must be like being flooded with Muslims coming in. But the amount they accuse Islam, the amount of uh, uh, print space and media space that the Muslims take, you'd think that Muslims must make up a sizable chunk uh, in France uh, for this. So France, brothers and sisters, it has a 67 million population. Now, considering how much uh, coverage the Muslims get, you'd think the Muslim must be at least 25% of the population or more and growing. But the truth is immigrants make up only 6.5 million out of the 67 million population. So the French indigenous people, who are 60 million people, they are fearful, apparently, of merely 6 million people. That's the scenario you have in France. So the attacks on our Prophet, Sallallahu The attacks on Muslims, the attacks on Imams who now have to abandon political Islam is because 6 million people pose such a big threat to a centuries-old civilization and to a 200-year-plus republic. That's the scenario we have in this country. I mean, it would be laughable if it wasn't so uh, serious. So this brings me back to the ayah I referred to at the beginning. Yeah, They wish to extinguish the light of Allah with their words, but Allah will perfect his message even though the disbelievers detest him. And that's what's going on here. The situation here is, is the French have declined as a people, has declined as a nation. And in their struggle to deal with this, they're now pointing the finger to only 6 million Muslims or 6 million immigrants in their country. Whilst really what's happened is, is the system has fouled them. Secularism has fouled them. It's made them more and more depressed. And if the French look around the world, they will see it's not just them. You look at the American people. You look at people around the world. Everyone is very depressed about the state of affairs in the world. And this is why many have turned to the right wing in the hope something might be different. When eight people own half of the world's wealth, something is seriously wrong. So really, my advice to the French people are: is you need to really uh, go beyond what your rulers are saying and really put a lot of your arrogance about your system behind you, and really take a long, hard look about the state of your country and the causes for it. Because it wasn't the Muslims who caused your loss in World War II. It wasn't the Muslims who have caused your actual decline. Really, it's of your own doing. So whilst Macron will try to deflect from this by blaming Muslims, the truth here is, is what Macron's done is he's resorted to the age-old trick of we've always had a problem with Muslims, there's always been a historical problem, and that problem is Muslims are a different civilization. You have a different set of values and the french have always believed their values are correct their values are the truth why are these people not adopting it so really this is why there is a clash of civilizations despite economic problems at home despite decline the problem here is is there are six million people in their country who have a different civilization and the french have failed to convince them of the civilization and that's why now the french leadership is resorting to actions such as you need to abandon political islam You need to sign up to a charter. And what's left? Concentration camps? That's the only things left. And even now there's talk of Muslim youth having to carry IDs in order to protect them, which really is to single them out from the crowd. And really these are some of the actions the Nazis did with the Jews uh, in Germany during World War II uh, as well. So as Allah tells us, they wish to extinguish the light of Allah, but Allah will perfect his message even if they uh, detest it. (inaudible) 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 <inaudible> 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 <inaudible>
1: Inshallah, uh, brothers and sisters, if you'd like to um, uh, ask any questions or comments, if you can uh, do so in the Facebook chat section. Um, Adnan, I think uh, Brother Jason Smith has a question for you. Um, is it true that France had control over their colonies whilst they were a colony of Germany in the 1940s? How are they able to control their colonies during that time also is it true that whilst it is compulsory to wear face masks in france and the niqab is still banned
2: okay it's a very good question so the germans when they took over france uh, in, in about a month what they did was they physically only occupied the north area of france which is where most of the population is And what they did was they were people in the French leadership who basically worked with the Germans, but they accepted they'd been defeated. So what was set up was uh, the German German occupation of France, the regime that was set up was called the Vichy uh, regime, which is basically the French politicians working with the Germans. So what happened was in theory and on paper, all the colonies France had were now technically under the authority of the Germans uh in the government in france the vichy government for practical purposes the germans only physically put germans in syria they didn't really take the germans didn't really go to the other colonies so the leaders of these colonies reported back to the political leadership in france and the political leadership was obviously the vichy government which was the collaboration between uh, the nazis and whichever french leaders they could actually find so in syria the Germans actually landed their jets there because in the Middle East, the Germans were trying to get oil and try to deal with the, uh, uh, the British Empire. So in practice, the French maintained their colonies, but they were reported to a government in Paris, which was a collaboration government between the Germans and the uh, French people who were prepared to uh, collaborate uh, with them. Your second point is, I mean, it's laughable. The hijab has been banned in schools. The niqab has been banned in public, but it's actually now compulsory to wear a face mask. And even in this situation, they still haven't reversed. Ha- you can't wear, you have to wear a face mask, but it can't be a niqab. That's a laughable scenario. And you've seen the last few weeks how the French have just been contradicting themselves. When Muslims talk about a boycott, they are like, this is of order. why are you boycotting us? So they attack our Prophet, and it's like... When they attack our Prophet and attack Islam It's okay Why do the actions That you're doing And really this is just A manifestation of a decline nation Where you don't understand Why people are Criticizing you But it's okay for you To be criticizing them All of that time So this is why I mean the, the, the Niqabi example Is just one of them And you know Allah, Allah exposes people Allah exposes the French For who they are Rather than Convincing the Muslims Rather than showing The strength of their Civilization What they're doing Is doing actions Which contradict Their civilization and that's just, uh, that, really that's a manifestation of declined people And that's why, you know, it's just laughable the, the niqab is still banned when the face mask is compulsory to wear I mean, if it wasn't so serious, you know, we'd be laughing about this
1: um, We have a question from Abu Subhan um, What the French are doing to the Muslims is nothing new Can you see this policy of diluting Islam having an effect here?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I was just having a chat with a friend of mine earlier, and we were looking at how, you know, in the early 2000s, we would talk about if Muslims don't do this, if Muslims don't understand this, what it could lead to. So the extreme examples were homosexuality, changing parts of the deen, what's haram becomes halal. And these were like extreme fringe examples we would give just to show people what can happen. And look at the scenario today. Uh, you know, you've got someone openly saying, you've got 20 days to sign up to, there is no political Islam. They're now defining our deen uh, for us. And you know, in some ways, the only thing left now is concentration camp. The only thing left now is, well, China's doing it. Maybe, maybe not in Europe now. In China, there are concentration camps, you know, false indoctrination camps, as they call them. But the thing is, the problem with Muslims and the problem with Islam is not going away. They may change their tactics. Some tactics may be extreme, some may be more subtle, but their problem with Islam and Muslims, that is not going away. And in fact, of the, just the last two decades, it's actually got uh, worse. I always fool countries that were more to the right. You know, Austria, these sort of countries will probably be the in the front lines to advocate harsher policies. But you're finding in France... Uh, in Germany, in the Scandinavian countries, all of these countries are at the forefront. And some of this really is to do with just the state of where things are. There's a lot of discontent in the West. You're seeing now what's happening in America. You're seeing more and more movements in Europe who feel politicians refuse to, re- politicians don't represent us. Politicians don't listen to us. Uh, and this is why uh, the thing is being pointed more and more at Islam. And remember, Europe has a long history. Uh, in a struggle with islam and muslims you know we're going back to the crusades here uh, so this isn't really going away unfortunately that's why it's important we understand their tactics and you know we need to develop strategies and arguments and angles on how to navigate this because it's not about just saving ourselves we've got to also save our deen as well so you know every time they're advocating a changing of our deen well, look at the state of your dean at the moment. In fact, the French are not even in a position to be talking about our dean. They need to sort their own dean out first. Their own dean is struggling. Uh, their own dean is actually—they're uh, struggling to even justify tenants of the actual dean. So, unfortunately, you know, it, it's going to get worse because the struggle between iman and kufr has always been there. It's going to be—it's re- going to remain until the day of judgment, as our Creator has told us. So, it means we just need to be aware of what's going on. And, you know, if there's any lesson to be learned here, when the French banned hijabs in Public schools. Unfortunately looking back now, many students just went back to school, they took their hijabs off. Now they ask them to change other parts of their deen. So the point here is, is some Muslims felt, if we just abide by this one policy, things might get better. But it's actually got worse. And remember, as far as they're concerned, if you if you can change one part of your deen, they're going to try and go for other parts of your deen as well, because they have a problem with your overall belief. And when we are two billion people in the world, we are a problem the more we abide by our deen and the more we unify. So unfortunately, I think things are going to get tougher. Uh, however, this is a test. Our Prophet was tested. The prophets were tested. The Sahaba were tested. This is our test. Uh, when they attack our Prophet, they're attacking our creed and we need to defend it. It's
1: exactly. had, um, Adnan, uh, um, I remember some time back you also gave a talk on uh, uh, terrorism and um, we have uh, literally not just millions but billions of Muslims uh, around the world and um, when we look at France and we look at its internal problems, uh, we see uh, fascism on the rise, uh, we see Mary Le Pen and uh, his party on the rise. Um, you know, if you look at the figures for murder, depression, suicides within France, you're right, for France itself uh, has many internal problems and the double standards are just unbelievable. Um, but I remember you uh, uh, mentioning once that uh, if we look at the people who are actually involved in terrorism uh, in the world, uh, the Muslims are uh, uh, account for a very tiny, tiny percentage um, of terrorism, but yet white supremacism and other parties uh, account for um, a large portion of terrorism around the world. But yet it's always Islam that being put in the dock and used as an excuse for them to further their uh, criminality. Uh, that's the secular criminality that they're trying to further.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the numbers, you will find Muslims are actually the biggest victims of terrorism. Uh, You've got many different databases and research uh, held by American universities and even European uh, institutes where they study and look into terrorism. And if we define terrorism as the use of violence to achieve your goals, you find Muslims are the victims of the overwhelming attacks uh, that take place around the world. So if you look at the Middle East, if you look at what ISIS did, ISIS didn't attack non-Muslims. The few non-Muslims they attacked, that, that gets lots of media coverage. Overwhelmingly, they were killing Muslims. You same in Africa, some of the uh, Muslim groups, apparently who conduct terrorism, which is what they always like to talk about, you find Muslims were largely the victims. And what you find is separatist movements, Right-wing movement they actually constitute the largest number of people who undertake terrorist attacks. But it's literally comes to the point where if you're white and you conduct terrorism, it's not really terrorism. You're mentally deranged, there's actually something wrong with you. The war on terror was supposed to solve terrorism. What the war on terror did was it created ISIS and it created more terrorism around the world. That's what's actually happening. And your point about uh, secular criminality, secular terrorism, this is it really terrorism has just become a buzzword to explain everything because look, you do have people around the world why are people going around killing people and the simple explanation is oh you just got these wackos who just like to kill people terrorism and what that does that's a very simplified explanation it's a lot more complicated so in many places you find there are disputes there are land disputes there's foreign interference there's all these things going on in europe you find right-wing groups, separatist groups constitute the largest number of people who undertake terrorist attacks. Muslims undertaking terrorist attacks are very, very few uh, in number. Um, so even when you look at the terrorism side, which Emmanuel Macron has really tried to push, you, you find Muslims are victims. Uh, and in fact, you know Muslims agree, nobody should be killing people. You know The indiscriminate killing of people is something Islam doesn't permit. But what that does, is that, that deflects from the real issue, which is look at your colonialism. Look at your interference in the Muslim lands. Um, You know, those are the real issues uh, that are going in. But if you look at the terrorist numbers, even in Europe, vast majority of them are undertaken by separatist groups, right wing groups, and people who are white.
1: Um, We have two questions, one from uh, Brother Rajah Sultan and the other from Frederick Jonathan, uh, both on very similar topics, I'll take both questions if I may. Um, What is Britain's stance for Muslims says Brother Sultan and Brother Jonathan says um, some would argue that the French utilize a particularly aggressive form of secularism which is harsh and oppressive and that the British version is much more benign and we should consider ourselves lucky to live here how would you argue this?
2: So uh, the first question was the British uh, strategy yeah?
1: with Muslims stance for the stance with Muslims uh,
2: So was Britain's uh... stance Okay, so Britain has the prevent program that is the look. all the Western countries, uh, all the uh, uh, countries that believe their civilization uh, is what the world needs, they have a policy towards Muslims, because Muslims constitute a large number, they have a belief that unites them. And they happen to also reside on key territories, strategic territories around the world. So they all have a policy towards this. And the last two decades, there's been so much data, research on Islam, Muslims going more and more back to their deen, more and more identifying with the deen as well. So the British have a strategy as well, but unlike the French, the British learned from the experience of colonizing the Muslim world. They learn from the experience in the Middle East and they learn from the experience in India. And what they learned was that the way to maintain control is to use more subtle methods. So you use different factions against each other you use more subtle uh, uh, tactics and not in your face. So for example, when Muslims first came to the UK from the 60s, 70s onwards, they were welcomed. We believe in multiculturalism. We're going to celebrate your beliefs. However, yeah, we do expect your uh, loyalty back one day. And that loyalty was needed after the events of 9-11. So when the people from here, born and bred here, were found fighting in Afghanistan, with the Taliban against British troops, that was the ultimate treachery from them. And from that point onwards, you've seen the step up uh, against Islam. So you saw with Tony Blair, uh, and you've seen all of this now incorporated into the PREVENT program, and the PREVENT program is what? These are the parts of belief, these are the parts of your belief we're okay with, and these are the parts of belief we're not okay with, and those are extreme, and they need to go. So now the healthcare sector, the education sector, if anyone's radicalized, is too is too muslim is too islamic they need to go for a process of de-radicalization and this is legally uh, binding now on them so it's just a different strategy to achieve the same objective the difference with the french wars is they struggled so much in their colonies they just resorted to confrontation and a more aggressive policy and in continental europe they've generally been more aggressive with islam anyway so you know going to your second point you could argue that you've got it better here. Uh, But that's a relative measurement. Both Britain and France are trying to do the same thing. They're just using different ways. So the British are going to get there in a different way, in a more subtle way. So the British, what do they do? They use different groups against each other. They have their own imams. They have their British-backed imams, and their job is to justify parts uh, 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 of the British strategy. So it's a lot more of a struttled strategy. It's a bit more political. Uh, it's a, it, It's actually much more dangerous, because at least with the French, you know where you stand. So although the French policy is more brutal, the aims of both strategy are the same, which is to rid Muslims of their core beliefs and to uh, make them more and more Western. Uh, so they're just gang about it in different ways, really.
1: Um, we have another uh, question here from Brother Jason Smith. Um, he says, uh, "Are people in Scandinavian and the Nordic countries in a bad state of affairs?" I thought these countries were social democratic societies, i.e., part capitalist and socialist. I thought these countries were financially prosperous, and the prosperity has, uh, was being shared more equitable amongst the people. Can you please explain the situation?
2: Okay, so the if you look at. Uh the European nations that colonised the world. You're looking at Britain, you're looking at France, you're looking at Germany, you're looking at Holland, you're looking at these countries. The Scandinavian countries really developed a bit later on and they didn't engage in colonialism the way the French and the other countries did or to that actual level. So even today, the Scandinavian countries don't engage in global struggle. They don't engage in global competition. They don't engage even in propagating their ideas. The French, the British... Uh, you got the Dutch to a degree, you know, they do this, they engage in global struggle. So, you know, the French and British still try and maintain their colonies around the world. The Scandinavian countries don't actually have them because these countries are much smaller. They're really city states. They, they focused more on, you know, creating a nation where you could have a decent standard of living. Uh, and you're right, they established social democratic states, which really is just the government's more involved in the country, it's more involved in the economy. Germany and France even established social democratic states. However, we've seen the last four or five years, depression, uh, confidence about the future, these countries are not as happy as they made it out to be, and they're supposed to be more freer. Um, so yeah, for a long time, that was the image, that these countries are much more happier, they have a unique way of living, the main thing, the difference between these countries and the other Northern European countries is the fact that they're not engaging in global struggle. So they're not spending lots of money on maintaining troops abroad, on colonizing other countries. So whatever they make goes on their people. If you look at the UK, it doesn't have sufficient wealth for nuclear weapons. It doesn't even have sufficient wealth to be engaged in global issues. But what do they do? It cuts money to its public. It takes on debt in order to maintain this position. The the Scandinavian countries don't actually do that. They are not engaged in global struggle. They are nations on the European continent. They take part in trade deals. They don't really engage in shaping the world. And that's really what makes them different. So whatever wealth they do make can be used in the country. Whilst in Britain, in America, for example, a lot of their wealth goes abroad to maintain 800 bases and to maintain their empire. And it's one of the reasons why Donald Trump was elected, because people wanted this to change. Uh, He didn't do much about it, although he said he actually would. So that's really the main uh, difference. But there's a lot more information now of how miserable Scandinavian countries are, uh, the level of depression actually going on, and how negative they are about the future of their particular countries. And these are countries that don't particularly have large Muslim populations. So on this particular area, they can't blame it on Muslims. If you look at continental Europe, they generally blame all their problems on Muslims for some reason or immigration. These are countries that have very small immigration, but... Uh, they're different, but I would say the main difference really is they don't engage in global struggle uh, and that's why in that sense they're a bit more successful but there are really small countries I mean you know, Denmark is smaller than London some of these countries have very very small populations so you're dealing with um, a small segment of the
1: public um, Anand, um, during your talk you um, mentioned some aspects of uh, political Islam um, but what do uh, did the West mean when they uh, attacked the idea of political Islam and uh, from Islam what is political Islam?
2: okay, so as far as the West are concerned, they secularized, which is their separated church from state so God, which was ch- the state represented God on earth, you should dictate life 's affairs they separated those two so the church is just a private thing you do you go and worship when it comes to public affairs. When it comes to society, the people decide how they want to live. So, when they talk about political Islam, what they're saying is your deen should have no part to play in public affairs, which goes against the key tenet of Islam. For us, Islam is comprehensive, it addresses all life's affairs. It addresses the economy, it addresses governance, it addresses foreign policy, it addresses social systems. So, for them, and you know, that's it's political Islam fundamentally contradicts their belief, which is secularism, separating these two. So what they do now is is if you believe in political Islam, that is what leads to terrorism. So these terrorist attacks, what they're doing is they're doing actions political Islam tells them to do. So what they're doing is they're muddying the waters when that absolutely uh, isn't true. What is political Islam? Political Islam is governance via Allah's uh, edicts. So Islam has rules to do with uh, economy. So uh, wealth distribution, wealth creation, currency, businesses, uh, welfare. Islam has rules to all this. Islam addressed governance, how you appoint a ruler, how you elect a ruler, how you account a ruler, uh, how you come up with policy. Islam has rules to do with uh, uh, criminal system uh, to maintain justice in the country. Islam has rules to a social system. How do men, women, children, Muslims, non-Muslims all get on? and for society to progress. So really, political Islam, as far as Muslims are concerned, is just one other aspect of our deen. For us, our history is not separation of deen and state. Our deen has always been involved in public affairs. For them, it, you know, they, if you think about it, their civilization started from separating church and state. So that's why there will always be a clash. So when we look at the economy, we are not looking at what's economically beneficial, we are not looking at how we can make more money, We're looking at what did Allah say about distributing the wealth? What did Allah say about which taxes to collect? That itself goes directly against the beliefs they have. For them, God should have no role in this. Uh, And that's why, I mean, this is just one area. You can see there's some fundamental differences what we have with them. What they try to do is if you believe in political Islam, this will lead to violence and it will lead to terrorist attacks. So they've muddied these two together, but actually that's actually not true. Uh, if you think about it, most violence has taken place with the West colonizing our countries, but that's not called terrorism for some reason. Um, when Muslims defend themselves, this is called terrorism. Uh, in Afghanistan, when they invaded, if you defended yourself, you're a terrorist. This is the thing that was actually going on. So for them, separating deen and state is what well, is the it's the heart of their belief. For us, uh getting even more involved in public affairs is what our is. So we're diametrically opposing sides to each other.
1: And uh, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I mean, it's, when we look at history, we found that uh, um, the so-called secular states, I mean, especially France, were um, extremely brutal uh, in bringing about their secular states in terms of uh, killing the police, um, killing the civilians, um, desiccating desecrating churches etc so they by no means have a um, a clean hand they have a rather bloody hand in history they're not
2: yeah absolutely all these colonial countries you look at Britain, you look at France uh, you look at Holland, you look at Belgium especially as well all of these you find have got lots I mean the Europeans their civilization came from conquering occupying and massacring the indigenous people across the world we know what they did to in you know, Australia. We know what they did in South Africa. We know what they did in the Caribbean. Uh, that's where it came from. They, their civilization didn't come from convincing the world of how great their ideals were. It came by forcing it down them uh, and by conquering them. Uh, that's how they uh, physically did it. And that's why it's not surprising the French are in so much trouble today. If they never convinced people in the past about this civilization, how are you going to do it now? The difference is now you're declined. Now you say you're a global power when in reality you're not. And that's why you're seeing more and more physical attacks on Islam, more and more attacks on our deen. In the past, they conquered our lands. They forced it down our throats. Today, they can't do that. So really, what what everything you're seeing from France is really an attempt to defend their way of life. Rather than saying, let's have an intellectual debate. We think your deen is wrong. And this is why we think our deen is right. and You should embrace it. It's just ridiculing uh, someone else's deen. But they're not coming from a position of strength. They're actually coming from a position of weakness. They're so depressed about the state of affairs. They're so depressed about the state of the ideology that they're just conducting wanton uh, attacks on Islam in the hope you know, Muslims might give up their deen. The Muslims didn't give up the deen in Algeria. The Muslims didn't give up the deen in history. It's not gonna happen now. And the way they gang about it, it's not even gonna be a discussion. So really, although as Muslims, we feel uh, hurt when our prophets attacked, they're coming from a position of weakness and if anything, their attacks really show uh, how strong the deen is even without a unified response and even though our rulers don't even implement Islam. So what do you think will happen when other Deens apply it, and we carry uh, our deen to the rest of the world?
1: Yeah, most definitely. I mean, um, I was reading uh, about uh, the French stance um, uh, on the Muslims and it's, uh, um, it's shocking and at the same time, very interesting uh, how uh ridiculous their double standards are um i mean uh, they, they banned the uh wearing of the hijab um and they went as far as uh, even banning the issue of uh, the i think the burkinis on the beaches yeah. <laughs> i mean that became an issue at one time as well um and um, i think a muslim woman uh walked into the national assembly wearing a headscarf and they had an issue with that um, maybe not even a hijab but just a headscarf um, the interior minister took issue with halal food in the aisles of supermarkets and not just halal food but also kosher food as well uh, saying that this, you know, this is religious freedom for, uh, shouldn't be allowed um, but isn't this leading to a, this whole discussion also leading to a much more um, uh, insidious, in, uh, insidious idea that they want to, uh, the Muslims to actually um, uh, change Islam um, or modernize or as they would say an uh, enlightenment period uh, for Islam needs to come as it did for, uh, for them
2: yeah so you see they hide behind their European experience enlightenment, reformation, separation of church and state these sort of things and they made this the measurement of progress so they sometimes find some individual muslims who are influenced by this uh, they, they they put our rulers there and they make sure our rulers propagate this but these are very few and fine between and fundamentally the problem here with this was the european experience it's not it's not the global experience what they've tried to do is we had an experience in europe and we're going to export that to the rest of the world and you should make it yours but we don't need a reformation uh, what we need is for these guys to get out of our countries and let us rule by the beliefs we believe in. What they do is they interfere in our countries and they hide behind labels like we're on an enlightenment mission. Uh, and we saw the enlightenment mission in Algeria. We saw the fact that you massacred over a million people, used chemical weapons against civilian populations. We've seen what's happened. So, again, it really show you this is really desperate actions from their side. You know, if, you're prop- if you're propagating something you believe in, you believe it to be the truth, you will debate and discuss. It's an intellectual thing. But what you find is it's become an aggressive thing, it's become a violent thing, uh, it's become a our way of the highway thing, and that's a very weak position for them to really uh, 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 be in. Uh, and that's why you know they, they, they look at everything from their historical experience, and that's the issue, that's your historical experience, that was an experience of most of the world. And that's why it's foreign, but they come to our land with these ideas, these are foreign ideas. Even the nation state, it's, it's a foreign, it's a European idea. They create states in Middle East and still they're worried these borders aren't fixed. They're still worried these blo- people don't even abide by these uh, borders because these are artificial countries. Is, it's a European thing where you've got nation states. Uh, these nations, mostly borders, never existed before. So they're, they're in a losing battle despite coming across as though they're in a stronger position. Despite imposing, really, they're coming from a position of weakness.
1: I just wanted to add there um uh... Uh, Adnan, that uh, um, we, we spoke about some of the double standards, etc. I just wanted to uh, highlight if you, just to show our brothers and sisters uh, how disgusting uh, Macron and his cronies are. Uh, I mean, while they put uh, drawings uh, of the beloved Prophet, Sallallahu over the buildings, etc. Uh, and call this free speech, uh, within their own system, um, any defamation against government institution office holders or disrespecting the national anthem and flag is seen as a crime. Um, for example, insulting the president was a crime in France until 2013. Um, the European uh, Court of Human Rights uh, uh, pushed for legal reform in that case. In 2018, French courts went after protesters who burned the effigies of Macron. Yeah. Really. Um, just very recently, um, the French justice minister proudly declared that insulting a mayor will also soon be a criminal offence so it's interesting how um, uh, insulting their um, uh, belief and their way of life uh, is a criminality but uh, they f- see uh, uh, attacking the prophet and Islam is fair game
2: yeah absolutely I mean even uh, a lot of this started from the public republication of the characters of the prophet by Charlie Hebdo this is the same magazine that sacked one of its editors when he insulted uh, Nicolas Sarkozy's uh, son-in-law, because he married a Jewish heiress, uh, and they sacked him because of the public pressure. So on the one hand, they're saying, you Muslims need to accept expressions of freedom, even if it means insulting your prophet, On the other hand, when he insults the son-in-law, he was actually sacked. So you see, this freedom of expression is really just something they hide behind. It's to hide behind justifying what they're actually doing. In fact, insulting the Prophet isn't even an ideological, intellectual thing. If you really got a problem with it, if you don't think of the truth, let's discuss it, let's debate it. Insults is not a debate or discussion. Now, why don't they go down that route? They don't go down that route, because they've got nothing to offer. They're telling Muslims, if you want to live in France, if you want to have an economic... If you want to improve your economic situation, you have to integrate and here's our conditions. There's no convincing. Eh? There's no our values are the truth. So you've got French people who believe their values are the truth and all around them, they see people not abiding by their values or refusing to even adopt them. And symbolic of that is when you wear a hijab. When you wear a hijab, as far as they saying, you're so oppressed and look at how free we are. But the reality here is, is they're very selective in their application of their values. And you find, as the examples you get, there are many examples of these double standards across the board. And what it really shows you, there's a deeper problem they have with Muslims. Because Muslims are singly singled out each time on the receiving end of freedom of expression. While you yeah. find in many, many other cases, they defend the right of the individual, they defend the victim. So where the victims, when they insult us, you have to accept it. But in many other cases, they take the side of the victim, even at the expense of freedom of expression. So it really shows you where the French people are.
1: Yeah, they're definitely well here. Brother one uh, has a comment. Um, it's a big shame our current Muslim rulers are only good for lip service. They need to be reminded that they will be brought forward in chains on the day of judgment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, with you you know, a bigger shame than the French here yeah, is the response of our rulers. Uh, this is an attack on our Prophet It's an attack on our deen. You know, if the Prophet sallam, if the attacks on the Prophet become the norm, what's left of our deen? There is nothing after our Prophet sallam, apart from the creator uh, himself. So if our rulers can't even move on this, what's left, and what's even worse is our rulers seem to move on other issues that are relevant to them. So Erdogan's is busy in Azerbaijan, he's busy in Libya, he's busy in Syria, but all you've got is made statements on this particular issue. And a lot of this really is: is our rulers only move when their thrones are at stake. Our rulers only move on issues which threaten their physical position where they are. On every other issue, they will pay lip service and they will use it to their advantage. And again, Allah will expose them. Allah will expose them. And really, what this shows you: whenever you have a people whose rulers are not representative of their sentiments, sentiments, they eventually get overthrown. That's what happened in France. You had the king. You had successive monarchies who became more and more distant from the people, the people became more and more poor, were struggling, and eventually they threw them in a bloody revolution. And that's what happens. Our rulers are only interested in their fronts. Whilst the Ummah cares about Myanmar, cares about Syria, cares about Xinjiang, cares about Palestine. Our rulers just pay lip service to keep the people happy, but they don't physically do anything. But they do lots of other stuff uh, when it comes to strengthening themselves so or strengthening their thrones. So that's why we need to really expose our rulers. And we need, and really, we got the people need to move. We need rulers who represent us. Sultan Abd Hamid, what, just a hundred years ago, he said that the whole world will come down on you if you go ahead with this play that mocked the Prophet. And this was a time when the Khilafah was weak, it wasn't even strong. And the French and the British realized you don't want to do this. That's the sort of response you actually need. So they, So the next time they think about, so the next time Charlie Hebdo thinks about producing cartoons, the pressure on them is so much by their own government that they're forced to step down. It's not worth the response that's going to come. At the moment, when Charlie Hebdo produces uh, caricatures, the French government helps them print it. They actually pay them and cover their costs. They support them. And it's not like we're in a weak position two 2 billion Muslims. France relies on oil. It relies on North Africa. It relies on energy. It, re- it still relies on Algerian energy. And Algeria, is the alternative to european dependency on russian energy that's how important libya and algeria right that's if anything they we should be making more demands on these countries but our rulers don't do that our rulers operate from a position of weakness even though we're in a stronger position so we need to expose our rulers and really we're going to show the Ummah and the muslim world if our rulers do not represent our sentiments they need to be changed
1: uh, man in uh, view of what you just mentioned, uh, Brother Rajah Sultan asks, I think our rulers, they need to be removed. They are the obstacles for the progress of Islam. Um, I think just just to add to that, uh, I mean, uh, um, Raja Sultan has mentioned their the removal, and you mentioned it in your comment there. Uh, but uh, how do we go about actually removing these despotic... Um, I mean, calling them rulers, I think, uh, sometimes is... Um, too good for them I mean these people are butchers, criminals, uh, usurpers of wealth, um, liars um, I mean uh, uh, these people are not uh, true rulers but how do we actually go about removing them I mean, what's the methodology of actually um, removing them and bringing back uh, um, the deen of Allah again?
2: It's not very difficult if you look at it, um, rulers have constantly been overthrown for our history the thing here is is the people need to turn against them what you find is our rulers try to divide the people they work with certain elements of our societies their support base over others so that support base actually defends them what you find is if the people turn against them and they force the people of power to remove the ruler it's over look at what happened to Hosni mubarak look at what happened to Gaddafi. look what happened to some of the rulers just 10 years ago in the arab spring When the people turned against them, they had no choice to move, and in the case of Gaddafi, they um, uh, killed him in the end. The thing here is, our rulers try to project an image, you're in the weaker position, you, Ummah, are weak, I'm in the stronger position. And that's actually not true. It's also important, our Ummah needs to see that our rulers are not just some mere dot in the grand scheme of things. They are at the top of the architecture that keeps us beholden to the West, that it keeps us weak. So they, they need to be changed, they need to be overthrown. And we don't just want to overthrow one leader, because if you see in Egypt they overthrew Hosni Mubarak, everything's still the same. We need to replace the whole systems. And these systems don't represent us anyway. These systems have never worked for the people. They've only worked for a handful of people. Uh, so we don't want to just overthrow a single leader because no system is one leader, no country is one leader. We want to overthrow the whole uh, uh, system. And to be honest with you, the demand for change isn't just a Muslim thing anymore. Even in the West, there's a demand for change. In the West, people can see things are not actually uh, right. So we need to show, we need to tell the people, especially in the Muslim world, your rulers is the obstacle, they need to be changed. We need to really, this needs to be the demand and the call to the armies in the Muslim world, who really are the leg up to a lot of our actual rulers. That This is what the people demand. If you don't do something about it, the people will do something about it. Um, and that's really the way to uh, uh, go about it inshallah.
1: JazakAllah. <laughs> inshallah brothers and sisters, if you've got any more questions or comments, uh, please, feel, please feel free to um, write your questions or comments in the chat section on Facebook. And Anon, you mentioned the ayah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they wish to extinguish the light of Allah their words but Allah will perfect his message even though the disbelievers detest it and um, we've seen throughout the world um, uh, a surge towards Islam um, in the Muslim countries Uh, we've seen that even after decades of uh, the Western powers uh, using their uh, puppet rulers in the Muslim world still Islam is strong amongst the people Um, and we're seeing that in the Western world even the Western people actually now begin to question uh, all the uh, lies and the rhetoric that's been going on in America and Western Europe about Islam. We're seeing uh, a very rapid uh, adoption of Islam from non-Muslims as well. Uh, But uh, is this enough or um, is there something that we should be uh, involved in in order to make sure that we can actually protect these people that are coming to Islam?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, me- people around the world are sensing things aren't right. Uh, you look at the poverty, you look at wealth inequality, you look at the lack of representation at the political level. They all ser- they realize something isn't right. They can't necessarily put their finger on it. Uh, and obviously the mainstream media deflects their attention. And this is where our role comes in. Uh, our Prophet, wa sallam, he was sent as a shining beacon for, for, for mankind. And that message still continues with us today. So for non-Muslims, we have a message for them. We have a way of life for them. Uh, We have a system from the creator that will actually take care of them and their needs, not pay lip service to actually do it. So really, if you're living in the West, you've got non-Muslims now who are seeing their problems, sensing it, and they're looking for something different. In fact, the argument today in 1991, it was the end of civilization. Sorry, it was the uh, end of history. The development of ideas had finished because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, collapse of communism. We've gone from the end of history to now, well, there is nothing else out there. That's the argument for this civilization. There is nothing else, so just have to put up with it. Well, why do we have to put up with it? It's so unequal. uh, It's so bad for the downtrodden. It's so bad for the weak. Surely there must be something else, and that's where we come in. So really, we've got a call for non-Muslims, which is the Islamic message. For our Ummah, we really got to show them that only in Islam is where your salvation actually is. So we need to establish Islam, establish it as a deen, and then we also need to carry it to the world as well. And that's what our Prophet ﷺ did. That's what the Sahaba did. Uh, Islam, you know, existing countries today, which are far, far away from the birthplace of Islam. Uh, And that's what uh, our Ummah of the past actually did. And so we have a message for non-Muslims as well. Uh, we, We have a deen uh from the creator himself not some made up uh, deen which is really and it 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 caters for people it caters for their needs they give answers to the main questions people have so that's really the message for both non-muslims and muslims that we should really take
1: (laughs) inshallah we're coming near to the end of our session today um so i'd like to say to the brothers and sisters for your questions and comments um, and uh, was there anything that you wanted to finish on in particular, uh, Mark? Today, no. I
2: think just to, you know to look at this in a more positive light. Although my talk can be, this discussion can be a bit negative. Islam the under siege. They're attacking our prophet. I think the positive thing to take about from this is they are doing this because of the state of their own system. They're in such a bad, weak position. This is their defense. So this is their defense of their civilization that goes back goodness, how many hundreds of years. So I think for every attack they do, really we're gonna see as you know, our deen is more closer to being established each time they attack it. And really we should, you know, looking at from that positive light, I think, uh, it's just a different way of looking at it. Otherwise it can be quite negative. They're attacking deen. they're attacking our deen because more and more people are coming to Islam. More and more people want something different to Western system. And really we that you know we should take that in a positive light, inshallah.
1: Yeah, um, I think if you don't mind, I'd like to take one last question. Uh, Brother Rajah Sultan just came in. There's quite an important question, I think. Um, Sultan Sabh says, you made the point that uh, ask the military to remove rulers, but our military are even, more, uh, are even more corrupt. And if they remove our rulers, they take power. And it is the same, if not even worse. We can see this in Pakistan and Egypt.
2: So, uh, when I said our military needs to remove the rulers, uh, obviously the military is not one person. It obviously has a hierarchy. Look, the, in, in any country, in any place in time, you have those people uh, or organizations institutions who effectively allow the status quo to exist. So it means you need to find individuals within the armed forces. And you'd be surprised, many people in the armed forces can see how bad things are. Uh, they can see where the country is going. What they need is to see from the Ummah, there are people who have fought this through. They've got a system and they can implement it and they can make the situation better. So if you think about it, you know, the army, people they can see and the army are from us. The army aren't some uh, separate society who live like in a parallel colony. They live amongst the people. They see what the problems are. They don't necessarily have the answers and they may not even necessarily see the military as the answer itself. These people, we got to convince and you will find sincere individuals in there. Uh, I've met people from different militaries who really can see some of the problems. They just never thought about the solutions. And in fact, they didn't see the solutions coming from the military uh, itself. Um, And especially in a lot of our countries, you find the militaries play a very key role, places like Egypt, Turkey, Pakistan, Indonesia. Some of these key countries, you find the army plays a very, very key role. And if you can uh, show uh, elements of the army, uh, or how you can improve the country and how al can actually do that, you find it's a good way to actually uh, uh, bring change. So yeah, as an institution, an army can be corrupt. That doesn't necessarily mean every individual is corrupt. And A lot of the countries I mentioned, because the situation is so bad economically, what you find the armies are the only competent organizations that actually operate. So you do find there are obviously elements in there that work with the West, they are corrupt, but that's not necessarily everyone. There are many people who go into the armies in Egypt and Pakistan in order to defend the country in order to defend the people um, so it's about targeting these uh, uh, individuals yeah, or groups of people um, and remember our Prophet when he used to meet the tribes to see if they can give power most tribes were non-Muslims they were corrupt, they did all sorts of stuff but well, what did he do? he, took, he, he talked to them he, he saw their capability and then he gave doubt to them, he made them Muslims and then they did the change because of Islam most of our individual soldiers, officers, are Muslims already. It's just a matter of convincing them of how to make the change and how Islam will actually work. Because keep in mind, we've not had proper Islamic governance for nearly 100 years. So nobody understands how will Islam even work. So that's what we need to do. We need to meet this. These, these are not like a separate people who are completely different to us. What you find, they want to make ends meet. They do care about their country and their people to, to a degree. And it's a matter of taking this message to them. And one way to do that is, if we can create public opinion in society, that will have an impact on the army. In Egypt, the army had to remove Hosni Mubarak because of what public opinion was. They had to move their own guy because they saw what public opinion was. And in fact, if they didn't do it, rule change might come in the actual country. So, you know, there's two different parts to this. There's a bit we got to do. We got to create public opinion and that has a massive impact uh, on people in the army, inshallah.
1: Uh, sorry Adnan, there's one point there that um, uh, I don't think you quite clarified, but if you can just uh, uh, answer this aspect of Sultansav's question is that um, the question is reporting to the fact that uh, the army will be the rulers. Uh, but is this the case in Islam where the army themselves become the rulers or?
2: No, so the, the, the army is a different issue to the executive. Um, they provide security, things like that. So yeah, if if someone in the army wants to become a ruler, he wouldn't really be in the army. But the work today really is for the armies to support the work. The the army doesn't know how to rule, and govern. Uh, they may think they do, and we've seen what they've done to most of our economies. But in terms of policy, uni politics, this is the work of politicians. Uh, this is the work of now. if They want to be politicians. That's one thing. But the 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 work with the armies is you need to. Uh, remove your support for the existing architecture and you need to support a new architecture. That's that's what uh, the uh, uh, work is. So, you know, when we meet officers or when we meet people in the army, it's about, you know, the change that's needed in the country, how it needs to be Islamic and how that will actually practically uh, work. It's not really about the army. If the army wants you to take power, they do that anyway. The army doesn't need the UMA to take power. So the fact that they're not overthrowing our rules how bad they are, it shows that over, there's obviously other issues. They're so uh it's not really an issue of you know talking to an army officer and getting them to become the ruler Uh, even they know they can't rule or they can't rule on their own um so that's why you know with these guys there's a lot there's a big discussion about the state of the country any country where you want to take it and how you actually do it inshallah i hope that answers the question
1: maybe maybe this is uh, a precursor to another talk maybe where we can actually (laughs) discuss the um uh, structure of the uh, Islamic State, the Khilafah itself, in terms of the unitary nature of the ruling, um, under which we have executive assistants, and we have walis, governors, uh, judges, um, mayors, um, and uh, uh, leaders in, on the local level, as well as the Shura Council as well. So, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, definitely, it's a, we don't have a system whereby um, the military are the rulers of the country at all. Uh, so, jazakallah khair for that. Um, but inshallah, maybe we can, uh, from that question that Sultan Sal's post, maybe we can uh, have a more detailed discussion on the actual uh, structure of the uh, state. Uh, because as, as we know, we've not been ruled, ruled over uh, by Islam for, for such a long period that it's no longer in our um, minds what it will actually physically look like. So, uh, I think that's a good question, inshallah. so But um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of today's session. Um, and, um, just like to brothers and sisters for, um, their comments and their questions and their interaction. Uh, Jazakallah khair for uh, um, a detailed uh, discussion. A, a major issue. Um, and hopefully we can all actually move forward from this. And, um, in our workplaces, um, through our discussions with our children and our relatives and friends, uh, we can actually give them, uh, ummah. A much clearer understanding of the fact that we as muslims should be on the front foot and not on the back foot and these attacks will continue coming Uh, this is nothing new for the muslims Uh, this vitriolic attack uh, on the prophet started at his time uh, with uh, the likes of abu jahl and uh, his cronies and it has continued to this day and islam has never manipulated uh, itself to follow the uh, status quo, but rather Islam came to change the world. So, inshallah, the, the Prophet uh, gave us the, the noble call of Islam, and um, uh, we are uh, very proud to be Muslims, and we should actually be on the front foot to carry Islam uh, proudly and with integrity, inshallah ta'ala. Um, So, inshallah, we'll finish off with us, rahman ar Rahim.
0: Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Qur'an, tafsir, Sira, and much more. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Qur'an, tafsir, and Sira are available at islampodcasts.com as well as on iTunes. Rate, review, and comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe.